Tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting from verse 1. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to the angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children... Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. This is God's word. Good evening, good evening. Let me add my welcome. Uh, if we've not met, my name's Matt, Matt Fuller. It'd be lovely to uh, meet you afterwards. This is terrific stuff in uh, 1 Corinthians. If you're joining us tonight, we've been working our way through this book uh, for the last month or so. Uh, this really is solid meat this evening. Let's pray that God would help us as we look at this together. Father, as we come and we come before you and hear you speak to us, Father, how we need your spirit to be at work so we'll receive these words of yours rightly. For here are challenging words that butt up against our culture, against our weakness and our desire. I say, Father, unless you're amongst us this evening by your spirit, we're not going to change, but please be with us. Would we all leave here this evening changed by what you've spoken to us and work within us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, uh, I don't know who your heroes are, if you still have uh, heroes. Um, we kind of all do. When we're young, we sort of slightly sycophantic and adulate various individuals. As you get older, it's sort of a more sort of reserved respect uh, emulation. But we all slightly have heroes in different ways. Uh, when I was younger, the f- I remember the first poster I had on my wall as a child was of Kerry Dixon. And most of you don't know who he is. You're thinking, is she a country and western singer? I think I've heard of her. No, he, he, he was a Chelsea footballer and a goal scorer and uh, terrific in my youth. Uh, he gave way to Bono. Make of him what you will, but in the 80s, he rocked. Uh, I think he probably still does, um, literally. Uh, but... Um, uh, I gave way to him, and then you sort of grow out of posters, and then uh, my hero in my teen years was probably actually a guy called Steve Brewington, who was uh, my maths teacher. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> more importantly, he was the uh, head of sport uh, at my school, and I thought he was a great teacher, and because of him, I wanted to be a school teacher, and I did for a number of years. I, I worked as a school teacher. Uh, I guess a little bit older, um, I, uh, I became a Christian in my years at university, and a chap read the Bible with me for a couple of years, Tim. And I wanted to be like him. And so I thought I'll go into ministry, full-time paid gospel ministry. So we we all have heroes to a greater or lesser extent. Even us cynical 40-plus-year-olds still have those we kind of like to be uh, or look up to. So you've got to choose your role models carefully. Because who they are will shape you. And you see, we, we work through some material tonight, but where we're going to end up is verse 16, where Paul says, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Copy me. Watch my life and go and do likewise, says Paul. Watch me, imitate me. You've got to choose your models carefully. And Paul says, in the Christian life, follow him. As he follows Jesus, follow him. Now, if you are joining us tonight, uh, we're in this book of 1 Corinthians. And jumping into this this, uh, passage, really, we're looking at verses 6 to 17. It is a pretty firm or fierce confrontation. It is one of those passages which says, what do you expect the Christian life to look like? Really? All plain sailing, a motorway of of ease and comfort. All hard work, nothing but pain and misery. What are you expecting uh, from the Christian life? And Paul has written this to this church in Corinth because their view of what the Christian life should be has gone wrong. So uh, if you've been with us, uh, these are my favorites uh, at, at the moment, my favorite little uh, illustrations. The, uh, the problem is the church in Corinth has been squeezed into the mold of the world. It's round. Okay, they've been squeezed into the mold of the world. And Paul says you want to be shaped by Jesus. That's a cake tin. Can you believe it? Uh, you want to be shaped by Jesus. You don't want to be shaped by the world. You want to be shaped by Jesus. And the problem is in Corinth at the moment, you're being, you're being shaped by the world. In a whole number of ways, we'll see, beginning next week, in chapters 5 to 8, in your sexual behavior, in your selfishness, in your view of what church should be like in giftedness, in all sorts of ways. But in chapters 1 to 4, it's been you've been shaped by the world in your view of leaders. You've wanted very worldly, 
leaders. And if you've been here with us, you've, you've seen, we've looked at, uh, in Corinth, they wanted really spin over substance, form over content, rhetoric over truth. They want very worldly leaders. Now, that's not too far from us because, well, actually, most people in this room are leaders or potential leaders. Most people, not all, but most people in this room have got or will have a degree or two or a PhD. Um, you know, you're, they, you know, leaders, intellectual, political, financial, leaders. And there's part of all of us that wants to be the impressive leader. Or at least as a part of us that wants to follow the impressive leader. And Paul would say, choose your models carefully, very carefully. In Corinth, they just got it wrong. I read something recently. Someone, uh, a chap was reading um, Acts chapter 7 to his son. Acts 7, uh, where Stephen, Stephen is stoned to death. He's the first martyred just before he's killed. He looks up to heaven, Lord Jesus, please receive my spirit. And uh, the dad read this to his son and they were talking about this. And the boy said, yeah, what God should have done is send Batman. Because if Batman had come at that moment, he'd have wow, pow, whoosh, you know, boof kapowed the baddies and Stephen could have lived another day and preached the gospel and that would have been great. God should have sent Batman. Yeah, where do you start if you're the dad? Well, God didn't send Batman. He came himself and suffered and died for the sake of others. Not at that point, the magnificent, triumphant leader. And Paul says, follow me as, he'll say later on, chapter 11, verse 1, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. If you were here last time, we looked at the first five verses, chapters four, 1 to 5. The point there, the stress there being the Christian minister is a steward who preaches the word of God. He preaches what has been given to him. So the minister is a, uh, is a, preach, a steward who preaches the word of God. But this section tonight, the Christian minister is a fool who lives out the cross. He's a fool who lives a cross-shaped life. And you might think, oh, thank goodness, that's Christian ministers are the fools who live out a cross-shaped life. But where Paul is going is verse 16. Imitate me. Let's cut it this way. Just two, two points, we'll, uh, and then uh, we'll get to the um, uh, verse 16. Two things, really. Uh, t- contrasts. Grace or pride, verses 6 or 7. Fool or king, verse 8 to 13. Just two contrasts. That's all we're going to do tonight. Are you going to live by grace or pride, verses 6 and 7? Are you going to be a fool or a king, verses 8 to 13? Let's take them in turn. Then. First of all, verses 6 and 7. Are you going to live by grace or by pride? Grace or pride. Uh, verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Writ- written. He says, oh, I've been talking about Christian leadership in chapters 3 and 4, but not just because I'm obsessed with that. It's for your benefit. So that, verse 6, you don't 
go beyond what is written. That is, you don't go beyond what the Bible says a leader should be and apply worldly criteria. Because in these chapters, Paul has said repeatedly, what the Bible stresses is humility. Don't boast in yourself, boast in the Lord. Don't go beyond a biblical standard of leadership. Go and apply worldly categories to it. Don't do that, is what he's saying. I've written this, verse 6, so... You don't go beyond what is written, and then, verse 6, then you will not take pride in one man over against another. So the issue seems to be in Corinth, that many in Corinth preferred Apollo, excuse me, Apollos. Apollos, uh, we read of him in Acts 18, he speaks powerfully, he's the rhetorician, he is alas, poor Yorick, you know, and he has the crowd sort of weeping and and moaning, He's, he's a brilliant speaker, and Paul is just less impressive, and so the guys go, we like Apollos, he's the man. And that's, we said before, that's quite contemporary. But it seems to be people are being proud about what they've learned. So it's a bit like this, two Christians meet up and one says, I go to Pastor Pete's church, and he's taught me everything there is to know about whatever life in the spirit. Well, that's all well and good. But I go to Reverend Rick's church, and he's taught me everything there is to know about Calvinism, whatever it may be. And therefore, I am better than you. I mean, it seems petty, doesn't it? Apart from, kind of happens sometimes. Some of you have just arrived in London, perhaps as students in your CUs. Where do you go to church? Oh, no. oh. oh, yes, well, where I go, I've learned so much more. <laughs> Don't you know? Um, it happens, that sort of pettiness. And Paul's comment is verse 7. Look, if you've received some insight, some truth, if you've received something from a Christian leader. It's a gift. How can you be proud? You see what he says? Verse 7, who makes you any different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? It's a gift. Why are you boasting? You've not done it. A friend of mine was telling me recently uh, on their summer holidays, they were in France and um, uh, once a month, and so he happened to be there, once a month, uh, the, the beach they were staying on organised a very, very serious sandcastle building competition. I didn't know they went that big in France, but they went big uh, on this particular beach. And uh, so people turned up quite early in the morning, 6am, with proper shovels, you know, real heavyweight kit, and uh, sort of, you know, squirty bottles just to get the right amount of water on it, and all quite ornate kit, and he'd been there the last two years, and so he knew this year to get kitted out. So he came with his kit, you know, big spades and shovels, proper things, and uh, a mate was there with him, and uh, so there was three of them in total working on this castle, and uh, I wish I'd brought the photo, but um, it was magnificent, the, the structure they built. If you've been to Bavaria, you know those sort of crazy castles they're all built by, I used to be a history teacher, this is, this, is, this is just free, just for fun. Most of them were built by Mad King Ludwig in the 19th century. That's just, that's just, just, just you know. Um, but these magnificent follies, you know, they're all on different shapes, about 20 different turrets of different heights. It looks like Walt Disney's gone a bit excited, but it's real. These mag- anyway, they'd built one of these in sand. It was brilliant, there's no doubt about it. But my mate said the problem was his son, age nine, uh, 
was really quite pleased with the work. And so went along to some of the other French boys and said in his very best French, buff. <laughs> Regard. <laughs> Mon. <laughs> or whatever. The, um, uh, and uh, he was being very... And his dad said, oh, this is not good. And so he said to his son, what are, you, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm just pointing out mine's better than them. You didn't make it. And his dad just walked over and walked all the way through. Actually, I'm exaggerating, he didn't. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, you know, it's just one of those really annoying things. Why didn't you do it? That would be just such a great story. Um, he threatened to, he threatened to. He said, if you keep boasting, I'm going to trample over it. It's a gift, enjoy, but you can't boast because you didn't make it. And that's Paul's point here. What are you, why are you boasting? If you've received enormous spiritual benefit from a leader, great. But it's a gift. How can you be proud? Did you achieve it? No, all you did was just receive it. Like being spoon-fed as a two-year-old. Mm, it's a gift. You can't be proud. What are you playing at? So look at the contrast there, verses 6 and 7. How are you going to live? Proud of what you've been given? Or by grace, saying it's a gift. Thank you very much. But the guts of it really is verses 8 to 13. Are you going to be a fool or a king? A fool or a king? Verses 8 to 13. Now Paul here goes for biting sarcasm. Corinthians, smug, proud, and saying to Paul, we're so much more than you now. Can you read, read the sarcasm here? Verse 8. Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings, and that without us. Well done. Well done, you. When I was at theological college, uh, every Thursday morning we went to chapel, and there was an outside speaker came in, and uh, you know some were great, some were magnificent, and they were variable. I don't remember many of those Thursday mornings. I do remember one. Uh, a chap called John Tyndall uh, came in to preach, and he was preaching on this passage. And clearly he'd been chatting a little bit to, uh, to some of the staff, the faculty, and it clearly got the impression, probably fairly, that some of the students were a little bit cocky, a little bit arrogant, not listening so much to the faculty. And so he was preaching on, uh, uh, on 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. And uh, he just very gently said, now, and I look out in front of whatever you are, a hundred students in your 20s, and some of you in your 30s, this was at college, I look out and you are probably the most able generation of students there's been. So privileged, so many of you have worked in churches before coming to college. You've worked with some brilliant ministers. You know so much even before you've come here. Why don't you share your wisdom with the faculty? Why don't you explain to them how you should run a church? Why don't you teach the faculty how they should preach sermons. Why don't you... Why don't you... All just shut up! And a hundred, twenty-five, thirty-year-olds just sat there. Okay. Just completely... We're thinking, oh yeah, we are quite talented, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, no, we are quite gifted. All oh, right, he's being sarcastic. And he's saying, why don't you all shut up and listen to those who are much older than you and know better? 
Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Entirely reasonable. And uh, you can see that one actually managed to penetrate my skull and my heart, I think. Paul draws a contrast between the Corinthians. They think they're kings. And himself and other apostles who are fools. And actually, there's essentially two elements to the mistake. Uh, One is of timing and one is of status. So the first mistake the Corinthians make is of timing. So verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've got everything already. By contrast, if you just drop down, Paul will say, verse 11, to this very hour, we're hungry and thirsty, we apostles. Or verse 13, up to this moment in time, we've become the scum of the earth. Paul says, you seem to have got your timing a little awry. You think you've got everything now. And yet those of us who are apostles, who probably know a little bit more because we've met Jesus Christ and are authorized to teach, we've got nothing. What do you, you've got a mistake. You've made a mistake here. It was quite interesting. I uh, enjoyed the experience very much. Uh, earlier in the year, uh, the, um, the elders here kindly gave me a period of study leave for three months. And uh, I had a little bit of time. And the time when I was in London, I tended to pop around and visit other churches in central London. And many were terrific, and I enjoyed enormously. But it was striking visiting some. Uh, you might say some were uh, everything now churches, and some were nothing now churches. So you went to some, and they were very good at, oh, you know, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God, you're loved by God, you're adopted, and it's wonderful, and it's marvelous. But there was never really any talk of indwelling sin, mistakes made, the fact that there's suffering in this world. It was, for those of a certain generation, it was the Belinda Carlisle heresy. You know, heaven is a place on earth. You know, everything now, everything now. You've got everything now as a Christian. It doesn't get any better than this. It was the emphasis. Of course, I did visit some churches which were just, well, I'd call it the Morrissey heresy again. You've got to be of a certain generation to get it, who sung, heaven knows I'm miserable now. And there were some churches where nothing was good in the Christian life. Everything was miserable. And basically, you just had to live miserably until you died. And then everything would be all right. And you, you get this real polarization between some. Well, the Corinthians were very much the former. Everything now. Everything now. Everything is great now. Uh, and you'd hear it in some churches, you know, this slightly twee language to my mind. You are a prince of God, and you are a princess of Jesus Christ. You are his princess, and everything will go well to you because you're, in, you're engaged to the king, and therefore nothing can go wrong, and you've got a ruby slipper, and, uh, and we got a little bit twee in the in sort of, Paul says to the Corinthians, now what do you think you've got now? You're expecting everything to go well now? You're kings now? Now you've got that very, very wrong. So he can say in verse 8, oh, I wish you really had become kings, so we might be kings with you. That is, I wish Jesus had returned already and we were all reigning with him. That would be great. But that's not what's happened right now. So there's a mistake in timing. The Christian, if they follow Paul, know that often it is suffering now, glory later. But it is suffering now as a Christian who is loved by God. So there is a 
sober joy in the Christian life. There's an expectant realism. It's not that everything is brilliant now and you've got everything now. It's not that everything is miserable now and you have to wait for it all. You're a Christian now, but you haven't got everything. It will be tough in this world at times. There's a mistake of timing. And then obviously a mistake in status, what they're expecting. Paul describes his experience, verse 9. It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. So he takes an illustration from the Colosseum and says, yeah, you know, Christians are like those who've been captured in war and right at the end of the games have to fight to the death for the pleasure of the crowd. We last in the line. We eat everyone else's dust. It's pretty pretty grim, pretty miserable. Verse 10. We're fools for Christ, but you're so wise. We're weak, but you're so strong. You're honored. We're dishonored. Three contrasts. Then he describes his experience in six ways, verse 11. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. And yet... Three other contrasts. When we're cursed, we can bless because it's wonderful being a Christian. We're persecuted, but we endure it. When we're slandered, we answered kindly. It's great being a Christian, and we know that. So we can respond in that sort of way. But let's be honest, says Paul the Apostle. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. He's talking about you know, the, the, the cack that's at the bottom of a bin. If you, if you clean your, if you only empty your bin bag out maybe once a week, everything's just <laughs> festered in the bottom. It's just disgusting and foul. We're scum, says Paul, of himself and the other apostles. There's an error of timing and an error of status. Paul would say to the Corinthians, and I guess to you and to me, what do you expect the Christian life to look like now? He's quite strong, isn't he? His experience is pretty grim now. Now, the Bible is clear. Not all Christians are going to suffer the same hostility, the same degradation at all points in history. That is simply not the case. I enjoy, you know, but Christians are always going to take some flack, no matter where you are, for being fool. I enjoyed the story. Uh, it gets told of uh, Joseph Parker. He was a pre- uh, minister, preacher in the 19th century at City Temple uh, up near Hoburn. And uh, one day as he's getting up to the pulpit to preach, a woman chucks a piece of paper at him. And he unravels it and there's just written one word on there. Fool. And he opened it and he sort of showed it. To, uh, to the people in the front of the congregation. He says, I've received a message from a lady in the balcony. It's an unusual one. I've received many anonymous letters in my time, that is, texts without a signature. But here I seem to have received a signature from someone without a text. <laughs> That's pretty smart, isn't it? Now, if that's the level of abuse, someone randomly shutting a piece of paper fool, who cares? You know, who cares? Who cares about that? And look, when you read verses 11 and 12, I take it that there'll be some here who are just bewildered by them. 
and would say, I have never known anything like that. I've never been in a church where there's been anyone experiencing that. That might be true. But Paul would say that is atypical Christian living. You've lived in an unusual place at an unusual time in history. I know a little bit of verse 12, I'd say. I don't know much of verse 11, but I know, much, I know a little bit of verse 12 of uh, working hard to make things happen and being cursed and uh, being slandered. I guess I know a little bit of that, and so do some here. On Friday, I was talking to parents. Uh, they've got teenagers at secondary school, uh, and their kids are Christians, and they're saying, yeah, they've just, oh, sorry, one of them had just gone to secondary school, so about a month or so in. He said, yeah, it's been hard. After week one, he was known as a Christian. He's been bullied pretty much every day and mocked for being a Christian every day. Some will know that at university, I guess, turn up and get known as a Christian. Some will know that in their workplaces. Not all. Not all of us will, but some will know that. You see the family in Bradford made the news this week, Christian family. Their case finally came to court. Uh, 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 They're a family of Muslims who become Christians, all five of them. And uh, by their community who hated them for that, Their car has been smashed in six times in the last nine months. Their children have been assaulted physically on the way to their school. I guess they know this reasonably well. Well, I don't know if you ever read uh, how much you read the the literature that comes from the Barnabas Fund. I'd commend to you their prayer diary. You sign up, you pay, you don't have to pay much, and you sign up and receive their prayer diary, telling you of how Christians are suffering around the globe. It's very sobering. We read it every morning at breakfast and pray, and it makes you cry. Uh, here was one of their things this week. It, it made it into the timeout, the church email that goes out. Islamic State IS militants have released a video showing the executions of three Syrian Christians taken hostage in late February. Each of the men identify themselves to the camera and say, I am a Nazarene. That is a Christian. Then they're shot. Each of them look into the camera, they state their name, their Christian identity, their date of birth, the village they come from, and then they're shot in the back of the head. Over 250 Syrian Christians were captured in February raids amongst, uh, uh, as IS raided, 35 villages in northeastern Syria, 202 still being held, 48 have been killed. Now, it will vary where you live in the world. But what are you expecting of the Christian life now? It's quite sobering. What are you expecting for yourself? Are you clear on these issues of timing and status? If you expect to live like a king now, that everything will go well now, that people will be happy that you're a Christian now, you're very confused because that's not right. If you met Paul today, the Apostle Paul, if you met him, what would you say to him? Paul, you're way out. You, what are you, what's your problem, mate? Why does everyone hate you? Would you not want to associate with Paul? Would you say to him he's got it wrong? But he would say, imitate me because I imitate Christ. In these verses 11 and 12, there could be a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hungry and thirsty, in rags, brutally treated, Homeless, worked hard with his hands, 
when cursed, blessed, when persecuted, endured, when slandered, answered kindly, murdered. We shouldn't be surprised, should we? John 15, verse 20, Jesus will say to his disciples, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. Got a couple of others. One Peter 4. Peter would write, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Paul would write in Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you're expecting heaven now, if you're expecting life to go well endlessly now, if you're expecting people to be delighted that you're Christians now, you've misunderstood the Bible. And Paul and Jesus. You just got it wrong, I'm afraid. This is a good book, if you haven't come across it. I really enjoyed this. Uh, short, probably take you an hour to read. Uh, Rico Tice, Carl Lafferton, Honest Evangelism. And it's a great book for many reasons, but most of all because it just says, do you know what, if you share the gospel with people, some will be thrilled and over the moon because they become Christians. They'll thank you forever. Some people will really dislike you. It's just honest. Very helpful book to read. Get your expectations clear. Look, do you, are you going to live by now grace or pride? Do you expect now the life of a king or a fool? What do you expect Paul says, I live like a fool. Imitate me. Let's look at these last few verses, 14 to 17. I'm not, verse 14, I'm not writing this to shame you. Now that is a relief. I don't know about you, but I get to that and think, well, what a relief. Because I read these verses, Paul, and actually I do feel a bit ashamed. Because my life often is comfort and ease. And only rarely is it hostility and persecution. Although maybe more is coming, who can tell. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. As my dear children... Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I love you. And you became Christians through me. I have such affection for you, he says. You know, in ancient culture, if your dad was a baker, you became a baker. If your dad was a farmer, you became a farmer. And if your dad says, I live a Christian life which is cross-shaped, so do you. Is his logic. Imitate me. Verse 16, I urge you to imitate me. And for this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who's faithful in the Lord. And what's he going to do? Is he going to tell us more? No, what's, he's not, not going to teach anything, Timothy. What he's going to do is this. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. He'll, he'll remind you how I lived. And my way of life agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, Corinthians, this is not a message just for you. This is normal Christian living in every church to face hostility for what you believe. It's normal. See, if you happen in London to visit a church or go to a church and they tell you everything is wonderful now, you become a Christian now and your life will be better and God will smooth out the pathways and everything will go well with you. Can you preach that to the widows of three men shot in the head in Syria? You cannot. 
And Paul is saying, if you can't preach a sermon in central London that you can preach to the widows of three men shot dead by IS in Syria, leave that church. Because they've not understood me. They've not understood Jesus. Because I teach this everywhere, he says. I'm not mucking about. Do you think you're going to be kings now in this life? You are sadly mistaken. Don't be deceived. Choose your role models carefully, says Paul. Choose them carefully. You can choose some and they'll promise you comfort and ease and all is wonderful. And when life goes wrong, they've got nothing. They've got nothing to offer you at all. Choose your role models carefully. At our prayer meetings, we pray for a man called Alex. That's not his name, but we don't use his name publicly. Alex is a young man who has gone to the Arabian Peninsula and we support uh, financially. Uh, he's gone out there for two years of language training before moving to, Middle, to the Middle East for the rest of his life. Here's the letter he sent before he went. The reason I'm going is that I am a resource in God's kingdom and as such I need to work out where I'll best be of use to Jesus. I'm single Resilient physically and emotionally and young enough to begin a new life and learn a new language. The political climate in much of the Arab world poses high level safety risks. This will deter some families and couples from going there. I believe it's the perfect place for a young man to spend his life. I want to spend my life in the region growing old and grey there. Or possibly dying young. Here's a letter he sent last week. Now that I'm learning the language, please pray that I'd not be influenced by others and the culture around me, that I would live out the promises I made in my commission to live a life of example and purity, courageously preaching the word in and out of season, even though I'll be hated by some for doing so. Now, if you know Alex, he's a young man full of delight and enthusiasm and infectious laughter He's built, so he'll take care of himself for a while. He's a young man with everything at his feet. Bright, able, could have got any sort of job in the city, and he's gone. And many would say to him, of course, who aren't Christians, you're a fool for throwing away your life. Tragically, some say to him who are Christians, you're a fool. Why do you take the Christian life so seriously? I think he's brilliant. I think he's a hero. And in my better moments, I want to be a fool like him. But more importantly, Jesus thinks what he's doing is very wonderful. Living as a fool for him. And why does he go and do that? Why is he willing to go and forego marriage and go to a place so dangerous we can't even name where he's gone because uh, his life will be at risk? Why would he do that? Because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ and knows that Jesus left comfort and glory to suffer. Homelessness. What have we got here? Dishonor, hunger, thirst, cursing, persecution, slander, death. Why did Jesus do it? To save people throughout the world, throughout all generations. And so Alex has gone and says, yeah, I love Jesus. And I'll be a fool for him in the hope that I can reign with him with just a few more. 
from the Arab Peninsula. Just a few more. Loving him. And let me suggest, he's a man we want, you want as your role model. He's a fool. Oh, Jesus thinks he's wonderful. Let's pray together. Our Father, we'll be in different places here this evening, emotionally, in our circumstances. Some of us will know little of hostility for being a Christian. Some of us are just exploring the Christian faith and don't know what are you talking about, don't really understand why people will be so angry. There'll be others of us who do know it, just day by day, the sniping, the little mockery, the little teasing. Father, we pray for some like, well, like my friend's kid just gone to secondary school, mocked every day. His family in Bradford, physically abused every day. And our Father, we just begin to pray for widows of those men shot in the head this week for being yours for no other reason than that they're Christians. And Father, we pray you'd give them all the grace they need to keep on joyfully serving you, loving you, enduring, blessing, answering kindly when they're slandered and mocked and abused. Father, would you help us to get this balance right? Not to so expect comfort and ease in this life that we deny what Paul is teaching. We deny the New Testament. At the same time, not just to be glum and miserable and say, oh, we just can't wait till death because it's all rubbish here and now but rather to live with a joyful realism in this life. A thrilled awareness of suffering. Father, help us to, give, help us to live rightly so that we will be fools in the service of Jesus Christ. I ask it in his name. Amen.